0: There is an entity that permeates every aspect of our existence. Into every moment of history, it is altogether real, certain, constant. Yet, you can't see it, hear it, touch it. Intangible, but we feel it. The way it radiates out into the pulse of our daily lives. Its impact is everywhere. It shows up in physics, the amount of energy transferred over a unit of time. It's revealed in the incandescence of the light, electrical current moving from source to bulb. It's demonstrated at the sporting event, when an athlete sends a ball crashing through a net. But it also wields its authority elsewhere. In the advances of armies as they pursue conquest, it fuels the verdicts of rulers, governments, and courts as they seek to make a way of life normal in society. It's unleashed in the storm of revolution, layered in the rhetoric of tyrants who assert their will over others. Its abuse fuels the cries of the marginalized, spurring on both protests and rebellions. It is wielded by all, from the rich and powerful to a small child taking their first step. It has the capacity to take objects, people, ideas, concepts, beliefs, ethics, and history from here to there. Its name is power power defined as capacity or ability when we act in power we make a difference we make a change entangled in every area of life power goes by many names authority control force strength rule energy influence leadership power crashes into every sphere of our life reminding us of what we already know that power is unavoidable. So that begs the question, what are we to make of power? How should we think of it? In what ways are we designed to wield it? Should we? We've seen the good that has been done by our ability to act. The progress and advancement that has come about because of the exercise of power. But we equally know that for its unlimited potential to create order, beauty, and growth. The possibilities of its dark side are just as vivid. The same power found in nuclear reactors, a power that's stable, efficient, and capable of sustaining life for many, provides the fuel of nuclear warheads that decimates cities and eradicates all living things. For all these reasons and more, our relationship with power must be examined and explored. Does it exist to be freely unleashed in a visceral demonstration of our control, our rights, our desires, our raw power? Is the endgame to vanquish others in a pursuit of authority, dominance, and greatness? Or is power intended for something else entirely? A gift given by an all-powerful creator? A generative and sustaining ability we possess to bring order, beauty, thriving, and life to the world? Which vision of power will move us from here to there?
1: Awesome, well good morning everybody. How are you feeling today? It's feeling good, good good to see you. Glad to have you here in the room, and of course if you're joining us on live stream uh, on the internet, glad to have you that way as well. Welcome everybody. And uh, we are actually in the fifth part of this series that we've been in together uh, that is all about power, as you can probably tell from the video. And uh, what we're doing in this series, if you are just joining us, is we are um, really kind of taking some time to think through and to examine our understanding at our relationship with a topic that quite honestly really does kind of touch and impact a lot of different aspects of our life. We're talking about the idea of power. And uh, and what we've been saying, and you can even just see from the video that we watched, when you stop and think about power and our understanding of power, uh, you realize that this is a deeply relevant topic. And it's deeply relevant to many different aspects of the life that we live, of the different areas that we see within our life. And so what we've been doing in this series is we have been examining and we have been thinking through our understanding and our relationship to power, and then we've been looking at the Bible, and we've been asking the question, does God have a vision? Does he have a picture of what he desires for us, what our relationship and what our interaction with power should look like? And so over the past few weeks, we've talked about a lot of different aspects of life uh, that are influenced by this incredible topic of power. And so a couple of weeks ago, if you were here, for example, you might remember we talked about the idea of power and authority, and so we said, how are, how are we to understand, does God have a desire for the way that we understand, the way that we interact with authorities, with the, the powers of authority? And uh, then, of course, the week after that, we took some time and we talked about the idea of the power for life change. And we said, what is the power for personal transformation? What does that look like? Where should we look to see real life change happen in our own lives? And last week, if you were here, I we talked all about the idea of our rights, And we said, what is God's vision for our rights? How are we to use our rights? How are we to understand the rights that we've been given? And so I want to encourage you, if you missed any of those conversations over the past weeks, you can always go back, you can check those out, you can listen to those on our podcast or on our app, and uh, we'd love for you to do that. But today, as we're continuing this series, what I want to do is I actually want to spend our entire time talking about something that's going to sound kind of strange at first, but I actually want to talk about power and weakness. That's what I want to do. I want to talk about um, really the relationship between power and weakness, and I want to talk more specifically about God's vision for power and for weakness. Now, you know, that might sound a little bit confusing at first, and so I think maybe the best place for us to start would be to get, would actually just to be by, uh, starting uh, with a baseline. So I want to start with, with kind of a starting point in our conversation, and I believe that it, it is actually a um, mind-blowing, life-altering reality. So this is the starting place that I want to begin with. A mind-blowing, life-altering reality. And it's this. Um, I think the mind-blowing, life-altering reality is that the all-powerful God of the universe wants to use people, he wants to use, more specifically, his people, to display his power. I I think that this is an absolutely mind-blowing, completely life-altering, if it is indeed true, reality. And what is that? It's that the all-powerful God, the God who created all things, the God of the universe, that he actually wants to use people. He wants to use his people to display his power on this earth. And I guess maybe if I could put it another way, I think here's the mind-blowing, life-altering reality. It is that the all-powerful God wants to empower us, he wants to empower you to make a real impact, a powerful impact in the lives of others and to make a powerful impact in the world around you. That the all-powerful God of the universe decided that the way he wanted to display his power was through people. And once again, I think this is mind-blowing, and (laughs) if you get a hold of it, it's absolutely life-altering. Now, some of you might be saying, where are you getting that from? Where are you getting this reality from? Well, of course, where I'm getting it from is the scriptures. I'm getting it from the Bible. And there are many different passages that I could show you that I think really just kind of reinforce this idea. But let me just show you one, just show you one passage. This is Matthew 28, very, very famous passage. Sometimes it is called the Great Commission. These are Jesus's first words to his disciples after he rose from the dead, according to Matthew. And here's what it says. It says, then Jesus came to them, to his disciples, that is to his people, the, the, the people who were following him, and he said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So in other words, Jesus came to his disciples and after raising from the dead, he said, all authority on heaven and on earth is mine. All the power belongs to me. But notice what Jesus does with that power. He then looks at his disciples and he says, therefore, you go. I I want you to go. Jesus takes his power and he then authorizes and commissions and deputizes his people. He says, the way that I want my power to be displayed is through you. I want you to go and I want you to make disciples and I want you to baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And then he says this and he says, I'm gonna be with you to the very end of the age. I think, again, this is a mind-blowing and if we really get our mind around it, it, is, it should be a life-altering, tra- trajectory-changing reality that we see here in this passage. However, what I really want to talk about is an important point of clarification. So God, the powerful, all-powerful God of the universe, wants to use people to display his power. But there's an important point of clarification that we need to think through, and that's this. And I think we're going to see today is this, is that God displays his power. The way that he does that is in really paradoxical ways. All right, so God... He wants to display his power through his people, but the way that he's going to do that is actually in very paradoxical ways. That's actually what I want to spend the rest of our time really talking about, is the paradoxical way that God wants to use his people to display his power. So you might be saying, well, what do you mean by that? Well, you guys, you guys remember what paradox means, right? We all know what paradox means. If you don't, let me give you a definition just to make sure we're on the same page. I got this from dictionary.com. Uh, paradox is a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that, when is investigated or explained, may prove to be well-founded or true. So, what is a paradox? It's something that seems contradictory. It's something that seems totally opposite but then when you look into it and you test it you find out that it's actually true that's what a paradox is so a very simple example of a paradox would be like the statement less is more I'm sure you guys have heard that before less is more it sounds contradictory it sounds opposite and yet in some areas of life it proves to be very true that less can sometimes be more, that you actually can get more done if you focus on less things. These are, these are true, yeah, it's a paradox, it's a paradox. And what I wanna show you today is that God is gonna display his power through people, but the way he does that is totally paradoxical to the way that we tend, the completely opposite of the way that we think. You might be saying, well, can you me an example of what you mean? Okay, here, here's what I mean. I think when I come to you today and I say that God wants to use people to work powerfully, In this world. God wants to use people in powerful ways. I think for many of us, knowingly or unknowingly, we actually have an idea in our mind, we have a picture in our mind of the kind of person that God can use powerfully. I think all of us have an idea of that's the kind of person that God can use. And what kind of person do we tend to think? I think we tend to think of a person, quite honestly, who possesses a lot of what I call the is. You guys know what I mean by that? is. You're like, what does that mean? Sounds like a disease. What I mean is, uh, I'll give you a few of them. Uh, We tend to think God is going to use people who are impressive. That's what we tend to think. We have an idea in our mind when we say, man, God can use someone powerfully. We tend to think the people that God uses powerfully are the people who are very impressive. The people who have impressive talents, the people who have impressive gifts, impressive skills, the people who have impressive intelligence or impressive wisdom, people who are impressive. Those are the kinds of people that God tends to use. Or for some of us, we might think of people who are persuasive, persuasive people. Those are the kind of people. God will use people who are winsome. God will use people who are really good at selling things. God will use people who present themselves well, come across well. God will use people who have rhetorical ability and rhetorical skill. Those are the kinds of people that God can use greatly are people who are persuasive. Or we might think God is gonna use people who are attractive, what kind of people can God use greatly? Well, he can use the attractive people of the world. You know, it's, it's no um, surprise to any of you, I don't think, that there's actually, well, someone laughed. That's, it wasn't, was not a setup for a joke. It wasn't. It's true. I'll, I'll grant it to you. But uh, it's, uh, what I was going to say is that it probably comes as no surprise to any of us that, um, that psychologists will say that we default to trusting people who are more attractive. That's just kind of the way it works. And so a lot of times we think, well, if God's going to use someone, they have to, they have to look a certain way. They've got to be put together a certain way. They have to be uh, someone who 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 is appealing in some way. We might think that a person who's used by God is a person who's aggressive. And what I mean by that is someone who's not passive, uh, someone who is strong, not weak, someone who can get in there, someone who's assertive, right? someone who speaks up and speaks loud and doesn't back down and the person who speaks first and speaks loudest. That's the kind of person that God is gonna use. God's gonna use the person who's creative, man. Yeah, the, the, um, the out-of-the-box, you know, the innovative thinker, the people who have the best strategies. Man, how would you come up with that? Those are the people that God is gonna use. And we could probably add a bunch more is on the screen. I think you get the idea. But I think we all have a picture, knowingly or unknowingly, of the kind of person that God can use. And typically, they're people who possess a lot of the is. Now, here's the thing I wanna say about that. I think that the reason that many of us think that is because quite honestly, I mean, let's just be honest, that's the way it works everywhere else in life. It just is. It's a fact. If you're a person who possesses one or some of these ifs, the more of these you have, the more set up for success you're going to be in this life. And that's just a fact of life. But what we're going to see in the scripture, what I want to show you, is that it's not this way in the kingdom of God, not always this way in the kingdom of God, that God displays his power power in opposite ways, paradoxical ways, ways that seem contradictory to us. More specifically, God displays his power through human weakness. How does God choose to display his power? What I wanna show you is that one of God's primary means of displaying his power through his people is through weakness, is through weakness. Now, some of you are like, well, what do you even mean by that? And where are you even getting that? And so let me show you. Right? The passage I want to take you, I could take you to a few, but let me take you to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at together this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And so if you got a Bible, flip there with me, uh, page 924, and the Bible's underneath the chairs. And uh, let me just say that if you don't own a Bible, you can feel free to take one of those Bibles home with you. Um, and then, of course, we'd just love for you to have that. So 1 Corinthians is where we're going to go. And as you're finding 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in just a moment, we're going to start reading in verse 17. We're going to start reading there, but before we read the words that uh, that are in this book, I want to first give you a little bit of context. I want to kind of give you some of the setting because I actually think knowing a little bit of the backdrop of what's happening in this city, what's happening culturally, is really going to help make sense of what the what the Bible says here. Okay, so uh, let me just tell you a little bit. For the book of 1 Corinthians, we call it a book of the Bible, and it's actually not the most accurate way to describe it. It's not really a book; it's a letter. And it is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was a first century uh, early church leader. And he actually is the one who established, he was the one who planted a church in this ancient city called Corinth in the first century. And so he's writing a letter to this church, this church that he started in this place, Corinth, where these people live, the Corinthians. Now, the setting that he's writing in uh, was one that was really unique. So let me tell you a little bit about Corinth, about what the setting would have been like. If I could explain to you and I could describe Corinth in one word, the word that I would pick, first century Corinth, the best way to describe it is it was very, very impressive. It was an impressive city. And I mean on all kinds of levels, this was an impressive city. Uh, Commentators and archaeologists are going to point out that it had an unbelievable, impressive growth. Uh, This city was one of the most up-and-coming cities in the entire Roman kingdom, uh, it was the kind of place where, it was actually a port city, and so it was the kind of the center of, of all these trade routes. And so because of that, it became an economic engine, and it also became a vacation destination. It was this up-and-coming, booming city. It was growing in unbelievable ways. So if you think about it in modern terms, it'd be like the kind of city that like, Google or Apple would announce that they were like, moving their headquarters to. It's like that kind of place. Cutting edge, up-and-coming. They also had impressive architecture. Uh, Corinth actually boasted of dozens and dozens and dozens of these unbelievably elaborate temples that were built to the Greek and Roman gods. In fact, to this day, you can actually go and you can see some of the ancient ruins. Some of these things that were built 2,000 years ago, these columns are still remaining and you can still see them standing and they are breathtaking. Back in this time, this was cutting edge uh, architecture and cutting edge technology. And so you see um, really impressive growth, impressive architecture. Um, They had impressive wealth historians will say that the word that was most associated with Corinth was wealth. So it was the kind of place that if you said, where are you from? And you said Corinth, people would be like, oh, Corinth, okay, I see. It's just like, it was one of those high society kind of places. And then uh, here's probably the biggest thing. I think this is maybe the most clarifying aspect that's gonna help shed light on what we're about to read. The city of Corinth was actually known for its impressive teachers. This was a place that had unbelievable, impressive teaching one of the things that was true about the Corinthians was that they loved wisdom. They loved wisdom. Specifically, they loved philosophy. I don't know if you guys know this, but the Greek word philosophy actually is uh, philosophia, and it literally means the love of wisdom. And so these people, they loved intricate, intelligent high-level, esoteric, complicated ideas. They loved it. In fact, they actually had 50 identifiable philosophical parties that were, that were there in Corinth, and they actually had these people called the sophists. And the sophists were basically itinerant teachers, and they would travel around and they would get paid to basically get in front of groups like this, and what they would do is they would just knock your socks off with this unbelievable rhetoric with these oratory skills, with their intelligence, with their wisdom, and they would just talk about these complicated, high-level ideas, and the people just loved it. They, loved, they couldn't get enough of it. Like, oh, have you heard this idea? Have you heard this thinker? And they would do that. And I, I want you, all I want you to understand is this is a really impressive city. And because of that, it attracted all of the is. So the most impressive people would go to the city. The most attractive people would go to the city. The most aggressive, most assertive people would go to the city. The most successful Um, if people would to make their way to the city. It was that kind of, like, I think a modern-day equivalent would be, think of like a New York City or think of like a Los Angeles. It's, It's the place where, man, I mean, it's just impressive on so many different levels. And yet the Apostle Paul is gonna write to this little church that's in this setting, and he's gonna say something unbelievable. And what he's going to show us is he is going to say that God's power is displayed through human weakness, He's gonna say, God does this in paradoxical ways. And then he's going to explain himself. And he's gonna say, the paradox looks like this. First off, God is gonna use the paradoxical, foolish message of the gospel. And then he's going to use paradoxically weak messengers to display the gospel. So I wanna just talk through these two things. You're gonna see them right here in the passage. Let's talk first about the paradoxical, foolish message of the gospel. Starting off in verse 17, here's what Paul says. He says, "'For Christ did not send me to baptize, "'but he sent me to preach the gospel.'" Okay, so real quick, uh, some of you know the Apostle Paul's story. He actually was commissioned by the resurrected Jesus Christ himself. And Paul is clarifying the primary reason why Jesus commissioned him. He says, "'Jesus sent me to do what?' He says, "'To preach the gospel.'" That's the primary thing I was to do, is I was told to preach the gospel. Now, so you might be saying, "'Okay, the gospel, what is that exactly?' So um, the gospel, uh, just simply put, that is the, the core message that Christianity is built upon. The entire Christian message is built on the foundation of the gospel. And what is the gospel? If I could put it, you could, there's a lot you could say about the gospel, but if I could put it in as simplest terms as I know how, here's, here's the, the irreducible ingredients of the gospel. It's that God loves us, God loves you, and that we in our sin, have become separated from a right relationship with our creator, that we're separated from him. And Jesus Christ was sent by God. He's God's son. He was sent by God and he lived a perfect life and Jesus Christ died on the cross 2,000 years ago for the sins of humanity as a substitute for our sin. And then three days later, physically, bodily, historically, Jesus Christ rose from the dead, offering us the forgiveness of sins and the redemption of new life found in Him, He offers us a new life, and He offers us the hope of eternity that is found in Him. That is as simple as I know how to put it. That's the message. God loves you. We've all sinned. Jesus died on the cross, and He rose from the dead to offer us new life. That's the gospel. And Paul says, "I came to preach that message." Now notice what he says: not with wisdom, and not with eloquence, not what you're used to. He says, "Lest the cross." Now this is really interesting. "Lest the cross of Christ," lest that that message, the gospel be emptied of its, notice, power. He says, when I came to you, I preached the message of the gospel, but I deliberately didn't do it in a way that was laced with human wisdom and eloquence and those kind of things because I didn't want the cross to be emptied of its power. That is a weird thing to say. What does he mean by that? Look what he goes on to say. He says this. He says, for the message of the cross, which is, by the way, that's the gospel, right? The message of Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Look what he says about it. He says, that's foolishness. It's foolishness to those who are perishing, but to people who are being saved, it's the power of God. It's the power of God. So interestingly, Paul says something that's I think here is I, I, honestly, I really appreciate his candor. I appreciate his honesty. He says that message, the message of the gospel, is gonna sound really foolish to a lot of people. It's gonna sound really foolish. It's a really interesting word in the Greek language. The word foolish, I just wanna show this to you, and the Greek, it's actually this word, it's the word moria is what it is. And it literally means foolishness, folly, or absurdity. Um, I don't know if you guys can tell, but just looking at the Greek word, do you know what English word we get from that? Can you tell? We get the word moron from that. So it literally is, mor- turn to your neighbor and say, moron. No, don't, don't do that, it's actually kind of mean, don't do that. So, um, but it's like, it's, what's he saying? He's saying that message, he says the message is moronic. It's It's absurd. It's absurdity. It's dumb to people who don't understand it. But look what else he says. He says, but listen, to those of us who are being saved, it is the, it's the power. That's, the, that's God's power. And the word power is equally, is an incredible word. It's the word dunamis. It's actually where we get the word dynamite from. So it's, it's where we get our English word dynamite. And literally what it means is it means ability or achieving power. So you see what Paul says here. I think this is incredible. He says, this message, the message of the gospel sounds moronic to a lot of people. He says, but it's actually God's chosen method to achieve something. It's his power to achieve what? To achieve what? To achieve salvation. This is how God is going to save people is through this message. This is his chosen means to do it. He goes on, look what he says next. He says, for it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Now, by the way, you'll notice this is in quotations. The reason is because he's quoting from the Old Testament. He's quoting from Isaiah 29. And then he goes on to explain it. Here's what he says. He says, where's the wise person? Where's the teacher of the law? Where's the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, um, the, the, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased to the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Now, I wanna hit pause there because I don't know if you're like me. I read that, and I read that again, and I reread it, and I'm like, this is super confusing. What is he talking about? So let's just see if we can break it down real quick. I think here's what Paul's saying. I think he's saying that, listen, all the wisdom that humankind has to offer, all of the wisdom, all of the wisdom that we humans can accumulate on our own, all of the teaching that we can come up with, all of the philosophies that we in our sophistication and our brilliance can come up with, all, all of those things, I think here's what he's saying, that it doesn't matter um, what the wisdom is, what our teaching is, what our philosophy are with all of our technologies, with all of our political systems, all of our education systems, I think what he's saying is as good as those things are, as good as human advancements are, as good as human technologies, human wisdoms, and human philosophies are, as important and as good as they are, he says they do not have the power to solve our deepest and our biggest problem. And what is our deepest and our biggest problem? He says it again. We need to be saved. We need to be saved. And there's no amount of intellectualism, there's no amount of sophistication, there's no amount of technology, there's no amount of political systems, there's no amount of any of those things. Are those human advancements, as good as they are and as important as they are, that's going to solve our deepest problem? And our deepest problem is that we need to be saved. What does that mean, to be saved? Here's what it means. It means that our greatest problem, knowingly or unknowingly, is that each one of us has been disjointed from our relationship with God. We we, we have been separated from our relationship with our creator, and it's because of our sin. We have sinned against him, and our greatest problem is that we need to be forgiven. We need to be forgiven, and we need to be made right into a right relationship with God. And this is why, by the way, when God sent a savior, he didn't just send a teacher to educate us, he didn't just send a life coach to coach us. He didn't just send a political leader to somehow, you know, arrange a different political system. He didn't just, it's not what he did. He didn't choose a military leader to defend us. He sent a savior as a substitute for us. That was his choice. And here's what Paul's saying. He's saying that message, what I just told you, what I just said to you right now, that our greatest problem is sin and our greatest need is to be reconciled to God and it's only through the cross that that can happen. Paul's gonna say that message it's going to sound really dumb to a lot of people. It's going to sound really foolish to a lot of different audiences. And he actually goes on to give some examples of how that message and why that message is so dumb and so offensive to so many people. So look what he says. He says, the Jews demand signs. And then the Greeks, they look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, the gospel. He says, and that's a stumbling block to the Jews and it's foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both the Jews and the Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. So I want you to notice what he says here. He says, man, that message is gonna be offensive. It's gonna be foolish. And he says, and it's gonna be offensive and foolish to different audiences for different reasons. So he mentions a couple. Notice first he talks about the Jews. He says, for the Jewish people, he says, the cross, the message that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, he says, that's a stumbling block. That's a stumbling block. And you guys, some of you are like, what does that mean exactly? What is a stumbling block? Well, actually, it's very simple. A stumbling block is exactly what you think. It is a block that you stumble over. That's what it is. And I know that's really profound. Some of you are like, can't get teaching like this anywhere else. It's a stumbling block, right? It's it's like I'm walking this way, and there's a block, and then I trip over it. That's the idea of a stumbling block. And so what's the picture? The picture is this. A stumbling block is something that you get tripped up on. The stumbling block is something that as you're walking, it's an obstacle that you have a hard time getting over or you have a hard time getting around. And so what's he saying? He's saying, listen, for the Jewish people, when you say that Jesus Christ is the Savior, that he is the Messiah, he says for them, the Jewish people get tripped up. They can't get around. They can't get over the cross. They can't get over that. And why is it? Well, here's why. He says the Jewish people demand signs. The Jews demand signs. Now, what does that mean? Well, a lot of you guys know this. The Jewish people were anticipating that a Messiah was going to come. They believe that. The Old Testament teaches that God is going to send a Messiah. But I want you to understand that they had a very specific idea of what that Messiah was going to look like. And they were looking for certain signs. They were looking for certain signposts. They were looking for certain indicators of what this Messiah would look like. And what were they expecting? What were they looking for? Well, if I could put it in my own words you know what kind of Messiah they were looking for? They were looking for a Messiah who possessed all of the is. Because that's how they understood power. That's how we understand power. And so when they said, God's gonna send a Messiah, they're like, well, he's gonna be impressive and he's gonna be persuasive and he's gonna be attractive and he's gonna be authoritative and he's gonna be aggressive. He's gonna come in here and he's gonna conquer the Roman government. He's gonna establish a kingdom and he's gonna rule forever. That's what they were anticipating. And so then when Jesus comes, and you hear about God's son who came in a humble form and no category for that. And so they stumbled over it. It, tri- it tripped them up. So when they said, hey, the Messiah has come, but he was born not in a palace. He was born in a manger. They're like, we have no category for that. When they said, yeah, the Savior has come, but he, is actually, he actually was raised in relative obscurity. He was a carpenter's son. They had no category for that. And specifically when they said that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, God who has come in human form and was killed on the cross. Well, that was where they had to stop, they couldn't, we can't, we can't accept that, we just can't do it. Listen, it is, it is hard for me, it's hard for me to overstate to you how unbelievably offensive the cross was to the people in the first century. You know, for us, it's not all that offensive, we wear cross necklaces, it's not a big deal to us, but back then, the cross was absolutely shameful. The cross was an execution device that was reserved for the worst of the worst, the most despicable people. In fact, every time I talk about how offensive the cross was in the first century, I always think about um, not too long ago, there actually was an incredible archaeological discovery. I think this is unbelievable. So uh, they actually found near Rome what they believed to be the first pictorial depiction of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So I want you to imagine, this is the first known pictorial depiction, drawing, of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And I got to show it to you because it's mind-blowing. Did you know, this blows me away, the first pictorial depiction of the cross that we have is graffiti. And this is is actually what it is. So on the wall, you can see they like etched this thing out. It's kind of hard to see. So over here is a more clear example of it. But what it is, is it's the body of a man on a cross. And I don't know if you can see this, but it's looks to be the head of a jackass. And then over here is like a little guy character. It looks like my four-year-old son, Drew. And then all of this stuff right here in the original language, it says, Alex Amenos worships his God. So here, here's what I want you to understand. The first pictorial depiction that we have of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is a mockery. Just, just to show you how f- you believe that God came as a man, and died on a cross. That's so stupid. That's so moronic. And here you see it. So for the Jews, Jews, it was an absolute stumbling block. For the Greeks, the gospel was offensive for a different reason, for a different reason. He says this. See, the Greeks, they looked for wisdom. The Greeks, remember what we just talked about? They loved wisdom. They were all about man, it's got to be intellectual. It's got to be philosophical. The more complicated and the more, the more intricate and esoteric the idea, the more sophisticated it is, the better it is, the more legitimacy it has. And so for them, quite honestly, the gospel was so offensive because of its simplicity. For them, it was intellectually offensive. The message was so simple. They just thought it was dumb. Like, that's so dumb. And can, can I just tell you something, you guys? I actually think that to some extent, this continues to kind of be true, doesn't it? That for some people, one of the reasons why we, a lot, of, a lot of times the reason people scoff at the gospel is because of its simplicity. A lot of people will say that message, the message that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and that he rose from the dead to offer us new life. You know, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. We're like, that's good, that's fine for kids. Like, kids kids need to hear that message. But once you get older, and you start to wise up, you realize that life is way more complicated and we need far more than the gospel to solve all of our problems. The gospel is not enough in itself. And for some, some people, we say that. It's, ah, it's just too simple. It's, we scoff at its simplicity. And can I just tell you something? I think to some degree or another, that there's actually some truth in that. Because let's be honest, the message of the gospel is unbelievably simple. It is. That doesn't mean, now hear me, that doesn't mean that it's not profound. It is eternally profound. And that doesn't mean it's anti intellectual. That's not true. The gospel has captivated some of the most brilliant minds in human history. The apostle Paul was an unbelievable intellectual. But yet, and this blows me away, the message of the gospel is at the same time so accessible that a four year old can understand it and embrace it. It's accessible to everybody, and for the Greeks, It's totally foolish. Now, all I'm saying is the message of the cross is offensive and it's foolish to different audiences for different reasons. And I actually think that continues to be true today. I think the message of the cross, the message of the gospel, you know, you walk into any university today, you walk into any major school system today, you walk into any political arena today, you walk into any think tank where people are trying to talk about how do we solve the world's biggest problems and you march in with this message, the greatest problem of humanity is that we've been separated from God in our sin and so God sent his son 2,000 years ago to die on a cross and he rose from the dead to offer us new life and that's our greatest solution. Listen, you're gonna get laughed at. It seems foolish, it seems foolish. So I think that leads us to a second question, to a follow-up question, and it'd be, it'd be this. All right, well, if the message is so foolish, if the message is so offensive, if the message is so crazy to so many people, then how is God gonna market this thing? Like If it's the power of God to save people and we need to get this thing out to people, what's the marketing? Str- God needs a PR guy to help you know, represent this message. And so some of us might think to ourselves, well, the best way to do this is that God needs to assemble the best sales force. That's what he's got to do. So we got to get the heavy hitters, man. You know, we gotta get, we got to get the most influential people. we gotta get the, we got to get the ifs on our team. We need to get the impressive people, the attractive people. We need to make sure that we have, we need to get, you know what we need? We need the CEOs. We need some pro athletes. Yeah, if we can get them to talk about the gospel, people might buy it. They might buy it. It's a good plan. I think a lot of us are thinking that's a great idea. And by the way, God does use people like that sometimes. But but can I show you, I think this actually leads to the second paradox. And that's this, the weak messengers. God's going to use weak messengers. So look what he says Look what Paul says to the Corinthians. Gosh, I love this so much. I hope, I hope you appreciate this as much as I just think this is so funny. Look what Paul says to these guys. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. So he's writing to this church he planted. And he says, guys, remember what you were like when you first came to know Jesus? And then he gives a description of what they were like. This is great. He says, uh, not many of you guys were all that smart. He's like, some of you were, but most, let's be honest, most of you guys just, you know, you weren't the sharpest crayons in the box. And then he says, think about you guys. He says, not a lot of you were influential. Some of you were. He says, but not a lot of you were, you know, I don't know, the most likely to succeed. Not a lot of you were the homecoming king or the prom queen. He says, a lot of you guys weren't that. He says, not a lot of you were of noble birth. Like, you didn't have, you didn't come from the greatest family. You didn't have the pedigree that other, some of you did, but not a lot of you did. And I can't help but wonder as the Corinthians are reading this, if they're like, thanks, Paul. Like, I don't know if you're trying to be encouraging, but it's not really doing the trick. I I wonder if they're like, you know, Paul, next time you write us a letter, maybe you want to get Barnabas to proofread the thing, like on the way, because Barnabas was the encourager and all that. But he says, Yeah, you guys weren't, you know, you guys weren't all that great. But then look what he says next. He says, But God chose the foolish things of the world, to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world, to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world, the despised things, and look at this, and the things that are not. You guys know what that, that literally means? That means the nobodies. He chose the nobodies. Why? To nullify the things that are, to nullify. And I think this, this if, if I'm being honest with you, as I've been studying this passage, it's been causing me to ask this question, a very logical question, I believe, as I read this. I can't help but wonder myself, okay, God wants to use people, he wants to do it in paradoxical ways, he wants to display his power. He wants to use a foolish message. He wants to use foolish messengers, weak messengers. I just not help but wondered to myself, why in the world would he do it this way? God, why did you choose this way? Like, if it was up to me, I wouldn't have picked this way. Why did you choose this way? And I'll be honest with you. I think it's a good question to ask. And we'll, I don't think we'll ever know all the reasons because God, they're God's reasons. He has his reasons. But can I tell you, I think there's at least a couple that we see in this passage. So here's the first reason why. I think he wanted to. He just wanted to. He just, he just, he, he likes it that way. It actually says, that. look at the passage. It says, uh, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. It just says it pleased him. God was pleased. Look at this, God chose the foolish things of the world. He chose the weak things. He chose the lowly things. Why did God do it this way? Because he chose to. Because he was pleased to. I actually think that that's one of the big reasons, but I also think that there's maybe another reason, a deeper reason, here, here's what it is. I think it's because he did it this way so that no one can boast, so that no one can boast. I think maybe reason, one of the reasons God chose to do it this way is because he wanted, he wanted to help deal with one of the biggest problems that many of us have is he wanted to eliminate our pride. He wanted to eliminate pride so that no one can, this is actually exactly what he says, He says, he did it this way so that no one can boast before him. It is because, this is so good. He did it so that no one can boast before him. It is, look at this, it is because of him. It's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. Listen, if you are a follower of Jesus here today, why is it? Why is it that you have come to know him? Why is it that you've come to believe in him? Is it because God God used another person in impressive ways? For sure, part of your story is probably that God used somebody to help you know him. But it's not because of them. It's not because of their skill and their ability and their rhetorical whatever. It's because of him. It's his power. And he says, so let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. He actually goes on in chapter two. He says, and so it was with me. Brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I didn't come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony of God. For I resolved to know nothing with you except for Christ and him crucified. So you see what he's saying? He's saying, listen, when I came to you, I didn't come with eloquence or human wisdom. What he doesn't mean, by the way, is he doesn't mean mean I came to you and I just like tried to purposefully sound like a moron and was just like, that's not what he means. What he's saying is when I came, I purposefully tried to make sure that I was very clear on the gospel, on the gospel. And then he says this, he says, I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the, here it is, the Spirit's power. So your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. See, Paul figured it out. He figured out that God wants to use people in powerful ways to display his power, but the way that he's going to do that is paradoxical, and he's going to use weakness. He's gonna use weakness as a way to display his power. Now I know for some of us, this brings up a lot of questions. It brings up a lot of ideas and thoughts into our mind. And there's a lot to say about that. But here's, here's what I believe. I think if we can get a hold of what Paul's saying here, that it actually has really powerful and life-altering implications. And I'll just give you two, and then, and then we're done. So here's the first implication. I think based on what we just read, the first implication is this, that although we know it might sound foolish, we can actually have great confidence in the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For those of us who follow Jesus, I think one of the reasons that the apostle Paul is writing this is because he wants us to know, he wants us to know that we know it's gonna sound foolish to some people, but we can have great confidence in the gospel because it is the power of God. It's interesting to me, the apostle Paul actually says on another occasion in Romans chapter one, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. That's what he said is that an interesting thing for Paul to say? Why did Paul have to say he wasn't ashamed of the gospel? You wouldn't say that unless there was a reason to feel shame. And I think, I think what Paul is trying to help us see is, I think he's being very honest, he's trying to help us see that this message is gonna come across as foolishness to some people. And because of that, some of us are going to feel shame in speaking that message. And I actually think that that's really helpful and very clarifying. I just tell you something. I, I don't know about you guys, but have you ever found that if you're a follower of Jesus, have you ever found this situation to be true? Have you ever found that when you're talking with somebody and they ask you what you believe, or when you have an opportunity to share with somebody what you believe about Jesus, have you ever found yourself in a place where as the familiar words of the gospel are coming off of your lips, and you're telling them that what you believe is that God loves us and that he sent his son and he died on the cross and that he rose from the dead, and that you've anchored your life and you've built your life upon him? Have you ever found yourself in a situation like that, that as you're sharing those familiar words, that your confidence in the gospel begins to wane? You ever had that? Have you ever had it when, as you're speaking those words, you, you think in the back of your mind, this person must think, I'm the biggest moron. I tell you something, I feel that way. Like, a lot. Like, sometimes, I'll be honest with you, sometimes, when I'm preaching to you guys, and most of you follow Jesus, not all of you do, but most of you follow Jesus. There are times that we're looking at the Bible and I'm saying things, and I believe, I believe, like all the way down, I I like believe it at the core of who I am. But there's times that as I'm saying it, I'm like, gosh, this sounds so stupid. I hope they didn't bring a friend today. <laughs> you know? I, I'm speaking, and I'm like, I wish I I believe it's true, but gosh, now that I say it out loud, I'm like, really? And, and listen, I think what Paul's trying to help us see is he's trying to say that, listen, if we don't understand this, if we don't understand that the gospel is gonna sound foolish, it might produce a shame in us that drives us to silence. And so he's saying, when you feel that, listen, when you feel that, when you feel like there's a need to shut your mouth or not speak the message, or when you feel that there's a a reason to sugarcoat it, or there's a a reason to water it down or to spice it up, what Paul is saying is don't do that because it's the power of God. It's it's gonna sound dumb to some people, and that's okay. That doesn't mean you should be a jerk. That doesn't mean you should be pushy. You should do it in love, and you should, should be adorned with acts of service, but don't be ashamed to speak the message because it's what changes people. Uh, Charles Spurgeon <laughs> preached a phenomenal sermon a long time ago, and he gave a phenomenal illustration that I just, I just I gotta share with you. So Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, a, many, a great many learned men, a great many educated, you know, impressive men are defending the gospel, defending it. And no doubt, it is a very proper and right thing to do. And it is, by the way, it is. Yet I always notice that when books like that come out, it's because the gospel itself is not being preached. So look what he goes on to say. So says, suppose a number of persons were to take it into their heads that they had to defend a lion, a full-grown king of beasts. This is such a good illustration. There he is in the cage, and here comes all the soldiers of the army to fight for him. They're gonna fight for the lion. Look what Spurgeon says. Well, I guess I'd suggest to them that they should just kindly stand back and open the door and let the lion out. I believe that would be the best way of defending him, for he would take care of himself. And the best apology for the gospel is to let the gospel out. Preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. Let the lion out and see all who dare to approach him. What a great illustration. I love that. You guys get that? It's a great visual. Imagine a full-grown lion in a cage. Imagine this. I actually tried to get one here on the stage, but the safety team was like, man, sorry, this is best, the best I come with. Imagine this, though. Imagine a full-grown lion, and then we get like, we hire the most persuasive and eloquent speakers to come up and tell us why the lion is so strong, and we get people to come up, and they're, the lion is strong, and we're trying to convince you the lion is strong. Listen, you don't have to be eloquent. You don't have to be smart. You don't have to be impressive. You just got to open the door, and the lion's going to do his work. Listen, let me just say, some of you are here this morning or you're watching online today, and maybe you're investigating Jesus. Maybe you're a person who's still trying to explore your faith and you're you just you're trying to figure it all out. And, and let me just say, man, we mean this. I mean this with all my heart. We count it such an honor that you would let us be a part of that investigation. But maybe for you, knowingly or unknowingly, what you're waiting for, that what you're waiting for is you're waiting for someone to somehow persuade you. You're waiting for someone to give such an unbelievable intellectual defense. You're waiting for someone to to be so philosophically riveting. You're waiting for somebody to be so emotionally stirring that you finally come to a place where you're fully convinced that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And I just wanna tell you, if you're waiting for that, I don't think think that's how it works. And quite honestly, I don't think we have it. But I will give you what I do have. I'll open the cage. And God loves you. He loves you and he created you. And he sent his son because we are separated from him in our sin. And Jesus Christ lived a perfect life and he died on a cross as a substitute for your sin and for mine. And then three days later, Bodily, physically, historically, it's not an allegory, it's not a myth. He rose from the dead. And then he offers us the forgiveness of sins and new life and a reconciled relationship with him when we make him the Lord of our life. And listen, for some of you, I know when I say that, I know when I say that, you're like, I know that. I've heard that. Some of you are like, that's so simple. Some of you are like, that's so dumb. You believe a man rose from the dead. And listen, I know, I know it sounds dumb, but if you have ears to hear it, it's the power of God to save you. And listen, I'm just saying, for some of us who follow Jesus, for those of us who know Christ in this room, is it not the power of God that has saved us? Not because of human eloquence, not because of wisdom, not because of persuasive speech, because it's his power, because it's his power. And you can know him, and you can know him, and you can come to him. Here's a second implication. Implication number two is this. Our weaknesses are not obstacles to God's power, but they're platforms for it. You guys, I think this one's life-altering to me. It's life-altering. A lot of times we think that the reason that God can't use us is because of our weakness, and yet we you realize, no, 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 that's not it. Actually, your weakness is the very thing that qualifies you to be used by him. Your weakness is a platform for the power of God. You, that, listen. The the struggles that you face, the, the, the weakness that you feel, the failure that you've experienced, those things are platforms for God's power to be displayed in and through you. I love what the apostle Paul says. He says this, he says, listen, he had this conversation with Jesus on one occasion. And Jesus said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. So Apostle Paul said, okay, well, if that's the case, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power might rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults, in hardship and persecutions and difficulties for when I am weak, then I am strong. See, Paul says, "I've, I've figured it out. My weakness is an opportunity. It is a platform to display God's strength. It's interesting. I was preaching this passage. I bet you... It was probably three or four years ago. Same passage. I love this passage so much. And I was preaching on it. And I um, I used this illustration because I was trying to get my mind around the idea of God's strength displayed in weakness. And I came up with this illustration. And I'll be honest with you, it was really helpful to me. This is very helpful. And so I thought I'd share it with you. Um, I'll give it to you now. And um, I, I really genuinely tried to think of another illustration because I'm like, I probably shouldn't reuse it. I should probably come up with a new one. But I'll just be honest with you, I'm not that impressive and I'm not that creative. I don't have enough ifs. I am attractive, that's true, but the other ones I don't like, so I got some of them, uh, but okay, here's my illustration. All right, here it is. I want you to imagine with me for a minute that you have two professional baseball players, all right, two 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 MLB players, and these two guys are um, just the best hitters, the best. I mean, the best of the best. Everyone's like, these, these two guys are the top two in the game, maybe of all time, and so there's all these debates, like there often is, of who's the best, who's the GOAT? And so a lot of debate back and forth. And finally, um, they decide they're going to they're gonna resolve it once and for all. And they're going to figure out who is the greatest of all time, who's the best hitter. So the way they do it is they actually assemble a home run derby just between these two guys, just the two of them. They get the media involved. They get the crowd there, the whole thing. And let's just say in this illustration, everyone's all pumped up. They're all jacked up. And here, here's, here's the rules. 50 pitches to each player. All variety, curveballs, fastballs, the whole thing. And whoever hits the most out of the park wins. So let's say the first guy gets up. All right, he gets up there and he goes to bat first and he, um, he pulls out his bat, all right, this bat. Some of you are like, what are you keeping behind that TV? And uh, a lot actually, Pastor Steve's back there right now. So it's not, it's not true, it's not true. All right, so let's say this first guy gets up, all right, and he gets his bat. Now, by the way, I just wanna tell you, this is my friend's bat, he let me borrow it. Get this, this is a $300 bat. And yeah, I know, it's an impressive bat. I guess this bat is made to hit home runs. That's actually what it's designed to do. So let's say he gets up there, all right? And some of you are wondering right now, you're like, are you a lefty? And I am, I am actually, thanks for asking. And so um, he gets up there, right? And they pitch him 50 pitches and unbelievably and remarkably and miraculously, he hits all 50 out of the park. And then, you know, the crowd's going crazy. No one has ever done anything like that, ever. And everyone's just going nuts. They're like, the other guy doesn't have stand a chance. There's no way. So the guy sits down, looks at the other guy, says, you're up. Next guy comes up, and as he goes to get ready, he takes with him this guy. <laughs> you guys know what this is? It's a pool noodle, I right? have A little foam noodle. And so, and and everyone, when he pulls it out, everyone does exactly what you did. They just laugh. They're like, no, that's a joke. He's joking. He's he's just trying to get the crowd going because there's no way. This thing's so stupid. Look at this thing. Stupid. Look at this thing. It's foolish. Look at this thing. It's moronic. And, but he's not kidding. And let's say that finally, after everyone realizes that he's not kidding, they start booing. I was like, that's so dumb. What an idiot. He's making a mockery of the sport. Until he gets up and he gets up to bat and the first one comes to him and he somehow, unbelievably, miraculously hits it out of the park. And everyone's just silent. And then he goes on to do it 49 more times. Now let me ask you a question. Who is the undisputed champion? It's the dude who used the foolish thing. It's the guy who used the weak thing, the despised thing, to display his strength. Listen, can I tell you why I think this is so profound? I think when we get a hold of this, that this is, this is the way that God wants to work, I think what it does is it does two things. It First off, is it liberates us from insecurity. Because we're like, you know what? It's not about me anyway. It's about how strong he is. We are all just noodles. Turn to your neighbor say, you're just a noodle. That's how you are. you know what the other thing it does? Here's the other thing. It liberates us from insecurity and it also frees us from pride because we're just noodles. And God can use us. He can use us to shame the weak and the strong. See, here's what I think. And with this, I'll invite the band to come up. Here's what I believe. I believe that God can use our weakness and inability to discover and rely on his strength. I think that God can use your weakness, our weakness and our inability to reveal and to discover how strong and how good he is. I believe that God can use our failures. You guys, this to me, oh, this is so, how awesome is God? He can actually use our failures and he can display his, he can use it to display his grace and his redemption and his forgiveness. And he can even use our failures as a way to offer guidance to other people. I heard someone say this this past week. I thought it was so awesome. They said, God can take our failures and in the context of biblical community, he can turn it into wisdom. How awesome is God. He can even use our failures. God can use our brokenness. He can use our suffering and our pain. And he can use those things to powerfully connect and relate with other people. I heard one pastor say one time, he said, people are often impressed with our strengths, but they connect with us in our weaknesses. And isn't it true that oftentimes our greatest points of suffering and our greatest points of weakness are our greatest places of ministry. We can serve and we can love other people. God can use our feeble attempts of faithfulness our feeble attempts to share the message of the gospel with other people to achieve his eternal purposes. He can actually use your attempt to speak a foolish message through a weak messenger to eternally change the life of another person. That's how awesome God is. That's how powerful he is. And his power is made perfect in our weakness. That's right. Well, Jesus, I wanna say thank you that you, in your wisdom and in your pleasure, you have decided to work this way and I don't know why, I don't think any of us really understand it fully, but God, I'm grateful for it. I'm thankful because um, in you, we can find great purpose in this life. In you, we can, find, we can find great partnership that the great God of the universe can actually use us. How cool. How incredible. That's not because we're anything special. Not a lot of us really are, honestly, but it's because you're powerful And so, Father, I pray that maybe today you would help us to be liberated from insecurity, that you would help us to be strengthened in our confidence in the gospel. I pray that you would remove pride from our hearts. And for some who are here today, I pray that maybe they would even just come to know you, not because of anything I said, because of your power that's made present through your word and through the gospel. And so I pray that as we sing these songs, help us not just to sing these songs, but to pray them in our spirits and in our hearts and as a community together. We pray in Jesus' name.